All right, well, back in Exodus, uh, Exodus 30, 22 to 38, the title of my sermon is Spiritually Clean. And here's the big idea, and uh, you'll hear it a few times this morning. We must be made holy to be in the presence of the one true holy God. We must be made holy to be in the presence of the one true holy God. I, I feel like our family the past year and a half has been sick just constantly, you know, everything. And I'm sure that's a lot of families. There's been a lot going around. If someone's really sick, like really sick, they might say, don't touch me. Stay back. Just a little distance. Why? Because, and, and why do we tend to acquiesce? We don't just go in for a hug. If they say, hey, listen, I've been puking all night. I feel terrible. Oh, can I give you a hug? No, we... We, we don't want to get sick. I mean, we try to avoid infection. No one likes to be sick. We take precautions. We wash our hands. Some people use Purell. I know some families here take vitamins, and if you're really sick, you go to the doctor. But you know, we know germs, germs are transmittable. We've learned that over time. Even kids get this through the imaginary game of cooties. If a kid has cooties and touches another kid, they now have the dreaded disease, cooties. And I'll be the first to admit, I'm a cootie survivor. <laughs> Anybody else? Am I the only one? The only one that'll admit it? Now, it can be quite damaging emotionally to a young person, because when someone has cooties, what? Everyone avoids them. Don't get near so-and-so, because if you do, you'll contract Cooties. It's a horrible disease. Now, in Jesus' day, there wasn't cooties. But in Jesus' day, there were a number of things that made someone ritually or ceremonially unclean, unfit for God's presence. A bodily discharge, contact with the corpse. But this taught a deeper truth, one that Jesus clarifies for us in Mark 7. I had the privilege this week of teaching Mark 7 at Central High School to a group of high school boys. Mark 7 is good. All of Mark's good. We'll be in Mark actually quite a bit this morning. I'm excited about that. Um, but let me read Mark 7. So again, <clears throat> this idea of human defilement, uncleanness. Again, there were rules and regulations. You can read about them uh, in Exodus, but also Leviticus. They taught a deeper truth. A deeper truth, and again, Jesus clarifies this for us in Mark 7, 18-23. Let me read that for you. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his what? His stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from, they come from within, and they defile the person you got to get this. The problem of human defilement 
in uncleanness is much deeper than most realize. It's, it's more than skin deep. It resides in the heart. Because out of the human heart, and if you're familiar with Greek, the, the word for heart in Greek is cardia. We get the word cardiologist. The heart, yes, it can refer to that pumping unit in your chest that you need to survive, but typically in the New Testament, the heart refers to the inner person, the human will. And from that comes all kinds of what? Wickedness, evil, deceit, and the list goes on and on. For that study I did this week on Wednesday, I read that passage, and then I looked at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and I asked the kids, I said, which list better describes you? The heart needs to be cleansed. It does. The heart needs to be cleansed. In fact, the Bible says we need a new heart. That, that is, you know, you could talk about the, the prophets, the, the major prophets, uh, diagnosticians. They diagnose the human heart again and again. It's wicked. It's crooked. You need a new one. And the good news is God would provide a new one. And we see that in places like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. The reason this is so important is because it is directly related to worship. One cannot be in God's presence if they are spiritually unholy or unclean. We need to be washed. We must be made holy to be in the presence of the one true holy God. Now, the context surrounding our passage this morning is important. It's always important, right? Jesus' king context is queen. I know I've said that more than once. Just prior to ritual cleansing. Okay, so that's where we're going to be. So just prior, what do we see? The, the bronze what? The bronze basin. That was the previous passage in Exodus. I know last week we took a break from Exodus, but in the previous passage, we have the bronze basin. It was a, a basin, a bowl filled with water for washing. It was so the priests could wash themselves. And again, this pointed to a deeper cleansing needed by not just the priests, but by all of humanity. One that could be found through contact with the holy things of God, or better stated, through contact with the Holy One of God. Now, being that we're still examining the tabernacle, we've been looking at the tabernacle for a few months now, I want to revisit the question by way of review. How does the tabernacle relate to Jesus? I'm going to argue that Jesus fulfills the role of the tabernacle and later the temple. How so? How is that the case? Let's begin by reminding ourselves of the purpose and function of the tabernacle, and later the temple. What did they do? What happened there in these important places? Well, the tabernacle was the place where man met with God. We get that. That was where man met with God. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. It was the place where God ruled over his people by his word. And probably most importantly, it was the place where atonement for sin was made through what? Through sacrifice. It was the place, the tabernacle was the place where sin was dealt with. Okay, so in your notes, I have this question, how does Jesus fulfill these roles? Number one, if you're taking notes, we meet with God through, through Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, we meet with God through Jesus. If you want to meet with God, you have to go through Jesus. You have to trust in him. Number two, 
Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. Oh man, this is a really cool passage. We'll be here again. Uh, my plan, we have seven more passages in Exodus, and they'll be in John's gospel around July. But listen to John 151. Again, point number two, Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. John 151. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Whoa! <laughs> That's such a good passage. But you got to wait. We'll get there eventually. Number three, Jesus is the very Word of God, the full expression of God's Word, the Word that gives life. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then lastly, number four, Jesus provides our once-for-all atonement through his death. John 1.29, the next day, this is J.B., John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. And then John 3.16, I think most of us know that, For God so loved the world that he sent or gave up his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, where else do we see this in John's gospel? Namely, the fact, the truth, that Jesus fulfills the function, the role of the tabernacle in the temple. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the verb translated as dwelt, or dwelt upon, or dwelt with, or dwelt among, Skino, that's the Greek verb, skino, and it literally means to tabernacle. So if you read that into John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled. Literally, that's what the verse reads. It, it reads he tabernacled. John wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the true, the new tabernacle. God's presence among his people. And then John 2, 18-19, so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, was he referring to Herod's temple, that physical structure? No, he was referring to his own body, himself. Jesus declares himself to be the true temple, the place of sacrifice for sin, the place of reconciliation to God. Now, how else is Jesus like the tabernacle in the temple? Verse 29 in Exodus 30 is our key verse. Oh, I hope you were listening to verse 29 when Pastor Aaron read it. What does it say? You shall consecrate them with that oil, right? All the different items in the tabernacle. You're going to anoint them. You're going to consecrate them so they're set apart. They're holy. You shall consecrate them that, here's the purpose, they may be most holy. And here's the part I want you to catch. Whatever touches them will become holy. Oh, we're going to get there. I'm going to come back to this. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about verse 29 and its significance and how it points to Christ. But for now, understand this. Whatever touched the holy things of God, the anointed items found within the tabernacle became what? They became holy. The second question I have is this. What does our passage teach us about God's presence and how one enters into that presence. Two things here. Number one, God's presence is sweet. Amen? 
It's sweet. God's presence is sweet. This is symbolized by the sweet-smelling incense. It was placed intentionally before the testimony in the tent of meeting. That's verse 36. So this sweet-smelling incense was placed before the testimony in the tent of meeting to make the clear association that there is no sweeter place than the presence of God. Amen? There's no sweeter place than the presence of God. You won't find a sweeter place than the presence of God. Again, whenever they would walk in, oh, wow, it's how I feel, but times infinity when I walk into a restaurant that I really enjoy. Maybe Texas Roadhouse, and I smell those rolls and that butter. It's going to be a good night. It's going to be a good time. There's that association. If it smelled like garbage, I'd walk out. I mean, no one wants to eat in a place that smells like garbage, right? But when you walk into the tabernacle, you're overwhelmed. Your senses are overwhelmed with this sweet-smelling incense to intentionally make the association. There's no sweeter place than the presence of God. I was reminded of Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come? When shall I come and appear before God? Now think about this. Do you really believe this? Have you internalized this truth? Do you believe that there's no sweeter place than God's presence? Have you made that association? It will be seen in your regular gathering, your regular attendance every Lord's Day, every Sunday. Do you understand why? If you truly understand the sweetness of God's presence and you long for it, then you will not forsake this gathering. For what does the Lord say about this gathering? He says in Matthew 18, 20, that when two or three are gathered in his name, he is there among them. He's here. We gather to meet with the Lord. Amen? This is a sweet time. It'll also be seen in what you spend your time thinking about. How often do you think about heaven, I wonder? How often do you think about heaven? Ah, when someone passes away, maybe. How often do you think about heaven? How often do you think about seeing the Lord face to face? Those who understand that the Lord's presence is most sweet will tend to be the most heavenly-minded people. Is true? Number two. So again, what do we learn in our passage about God, His character? Number one, He's sweet. God's presence is sweet. Number two, God's presence is holy. And we, we sang about that this morning. God's presence is holy. God's presence demands holiness on the part of those who wish to enter into God's presence. Whatever or whomever dwells in God's presence must resemble the holy God. And God is what? God is holy. So those who dare to be in his presence must be, must be holy. Verses 25 to 30. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it shall, you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils, right? Everything. And the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. 
Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Aaron and those who serve in the presence of God must resemble God. God is what? Therefore, those who are in his presence must be what? They need to smell like God. They need to smell like God. They need to be holy like God. We see this in our passage. That might sound strange. Again, God's dwelling place was to be filled with the smell of this sweet-smelling incense. Verses 34 to 36, one more time. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stack and onicha and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each shall there be an equal part. And make an incense, blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. All of this points to Jesus and his saving work. Maybe you're thinking, how so? How does this point to Jesus? How does this point to Jesus? Recall this scene in John 20. Your mind's racing. What happened in John 20? I don't know. What happened in John 20? Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto his disciples. Now, catch it. The same Spirit that anointed Jesus for his mission and ministry is given to his followers. Why? Why is that important? Let me read this, John 20, 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Again, why? Why is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, given to followers of Jesus? To answer this question, let's quickly turn to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I was encouraged, one of the kids in the Bible study on Wednesday, I, I asked, hey, do y'all know what that says? And he just like riddled it off quickly, the fruit of the Spirit. I was like, wow, good job, bud. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Again, the question hanging in the air right now that we have to answer, why does Jesus give the Holy Spirit to his followers? Well, Let's look at Galatians 5, that list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth. Who embodies these things perfectly? Who, who, who does that sound like? Who put these things into practice perfectly? Not just occasionally, but perfectly. Say it again. Jesus, okay? And so those who trust in Jesus are given the same spirit so that we might resemble who? Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus are declared holy, like Jesus, and are made holy by the Spirit that Jesus gives. Why? So that we might be with Him and resemble Him in this for His glory. Amen? What does the gospel do? Again, the gospel is the good news of the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. What does that good news do? It results in both a holy status and holy living. Through trusting in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, we are declared 
holy or righteous before God. And thus we are reconciled. We're brought back into relationship with God. And through trusting in Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of holy living. We are declared holy and empowered to live holy. We must be made holy to be in the presence of the one true holy God. How do we get to be holy? By trusting in the Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, if you're going to be in God's presence, you have to resemble him, right? How do we resemble him? By trusting in Jesus. Because again, those who trust in Jesus are declared holy and made to be holy by the Spirit that Jesus gives. Amen? Oh, that's why I always say the gospel does two things. It provides forgiveness, yes, but also transformation. Those who encounter Jesus in faith are fit, fit for the presence of God. The unclean are made clean. The unholy are made holy. Jesus is holy. And it's only through a saving encounter with Jesus that the unholy are made holy and fit for God's presence. God only dwells in those who have Jesus as their king. Now, I want to come back to that verse, verse 29, all those things that were anointed, consecrated, right? Whatever came in contact with them was now made holy. That's pretty cool, right? I want us to see this and how it points to Jesus because that's what Jesus does. You're going to notice, if you know life in Second Temple Judaism, which was the time of the Jewish world during the time of Jesus, there was a lot of tradition, a lot of rules, but there was an understanding that if you were unclean, you had to stay away. If you were ceremonially unclean, if you had to discharge, if you'd come in contact with the corpse, you were cut off from God's people. You were unclean. If you were a leper, if you had a skin disease, you had to walk around saying, unclean, don't come near, because if you do, if I touch you, you're going to become unclean. It's going to spread like cooties. That's why I use that illustration. we see something remarkable in Mark's gospel. Something unexpected. You see, when Jesus, who is clean, comes into contact with those who are unclean, the unclean become clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The unclean, through contact with him, become clean. And that points to the cross. At the cross, Jesus takes our uncleanness, our spiritual uncleanness, our sin, our guilt, our shame, so that by trusting in him, we are made what? Spiritually clean. So three examples in the Gospel of Mark where the Holy Savior makes the unholy holy. Let me read this, and there's dozens in Mark. Um, Man, I'm just going to point to three. Mark 1, 40-42. You have to know the culture to understand how significant this is, how meaningful this is, how important this is. And a leper came to him. This is at the end of Mark 1. And a leper, someone who had a skin disease with no cure, leprosy. And a leper came to Jesus imploring him. He's begging him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand. No! Don't do it! Right? I mean, seriously, in that culture, you would say, No, 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 what are you doing? You don't touch a leper. Sorry if I scared the kids. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. You don't do that. And said to him, I will, listen to the language, be clean. 
Oh, oh man. And immediately, and that's, that's the important word in Mark's gospel, you thus in Greek, every time Jesus heals somebody, it's not, okay, Jesus, when, when's the change going to go into effect? It happens immediately because he has all power and authority. Amen? In Mark, we see he has power over sickness, disease, death, the demonic in nature. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. <laughs> Man. Okay, maybe that didn't wow you. Let's keep going. Mark 5, 1 to 15. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has just calmed a storm with his voice, with his command. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. They're in Gentile territory. And when G, and again, I mean, that's like unclean territory. This is full of cooties. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Mark wants us to see something. It's not just a spirit, it's an unclean spirit. And I wonder if you have contact with an unclean spirit, what's going to happen to you, friends? You're going to become what? Unclean. He lived among the tombs. Unclean, right? Come on, under the tombs unclean and no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces no one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountain he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones he's bleeding he's what unclean and when he saw Jesus from afar he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Let me pause because I thought this was going to distract people. Why would Jesus do that? What's the point? Those poor piggies. Again, the presence of pigs tells us this is Gentile territory. It doesn't take a theologian to answer the question, why did Jesus allow this? The point is this. What the demons did to the pigs, they intended to do to the man. What did they do to the pigs? They destroyed them. What did they intend to do to the man? Destroy him. What did Jesus rescue the man from? Destruction. And if you keep reading this story, not just physical destruction, but eternal destruction. All right, let's keep going. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And this is the part I want you to hear. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. What, before an encounter with Jesus, he was a madman, crying out, breaking shackles. What is going on with this guy? living among the tombs, but after an encounter with Jesus, what? Dressed and in his right mind, and the people were afraid. 
And later, if you continue reading the story, he pleads with Jesus, let me be with you. Let me follow you. All right, the last one is this. I, I hope all of us are familiar with Mark 5, 24 to 34. Because of time, let me just summarize it. The ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name, has a little daughter, 12 years old, who's dying. Comes to Jesus, begging him, Jesus, please heal my daughter. She's dying. He uses a colloquialism in the Greek. It literally means she's on death's doorstep. This is not the flu. She's dying. But he says, if you come and touch her, I know that she will live and not die. So Jesus goes. But on the way, there's a woman who has an issue of bleeding for 12 years. She's used all her money on physicians, and guess what? She's only gotten worse. She's dying. She's helpless. She's hopeless. She is unclean by definition. And in her mind, she says, if I just come up behind Jesus and touch his garment, I'll be made well. She had faith. She touches Jesus. Power goes out from him, and she's restored. Jesus stops. Who touched me? She comes forward. It was me. He says, daughter, because of your faith, you've been sozo, you've been saved. That's the Greek word, healed, but the word sozo in Greek means saved. You've been saved because of your faith. She comes to Jesus unclean, but through an encounter of faith in Jesus, she's made what, friends? Is Jesus made unclean? No, she's made what? She's made clean. Again, what we see in these passages is that Jesus is able to make the unclean, those who are spiritually unclean, clean, and the unholy, holy, and fit for God's presence. Jesus, and again, all of this clearly points to the cross, Jesus takes our uncleanness and our unholiness upon himself. He bears our sin, our shame, and our guilt on the cross, receiving in himself the full punishment, not for his sin, but for our sin, so that we in him might be holy, clean, forgiven, and fit for God's presence. All of these incredible works in Mark point to what the cross would accomplish for us. Jesus is the anointed one, the only one who can make us holy and fit for God's presence. We must be made holy to be in the presence of the one true holy God. Again, the most remarkable thing about these passages in Mark is that any time the unclean come and have an encounter with Jesus, he does not become unclean. They become clean through an encounter with him. Oh! An encounter with Jesus results in the unclean becoming clean. I want to take this a step further, one step further. I mentioned this earlier, but in this context, if you were unclean, right, you were cut off from God's people. You were cut off from God. You had to go through uh, a series of steps to be brought back into fellowship, right? You had to basically prove yourself before a priest, someone who had authority. The, the point of this is Jesus took our curse, Jesus on the cross was cut off for us. Jesus endured separation from the Father in our place. We deserve to be cut off because we're what? We're unclean. We're unholy. But Jesus takes our sin and the consequence of our sin, he is cut off from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's cut off so that we could be brought near. Amen? That is the good news. Let me tell you a story. Um, back when I was living in Africa, in Cameroon in 2010, there was a family that passed through our village from France. And this is pretty remarkable. It was a young couple. 
husband and wife, and they'd entered Africa in the north and were driving through. They were going to go all the way to the southernmost tip. They were farmers, and they had this new technology, this new way of farming. It was just much more efficient, and they were teaching the African people this new way of farming, this new technology. That was their goal, to take a year to do that of their lives. And in God's providence, they stopped through the village of Indu. They weren't believers. They smelled like death. They came up to me, and I'm like, oh my, they looked horrible. I mean, they looked like they'd rolled in mud, like your kids do after a rainy day if they're playing outside. They looked and smelled terrible. And I said, do you guys want to clean up? Like, I, I have this little shower. Most days it doesn't work, but right now the water's running. So the days it didn't work, I had a bucket. I'd take it to the river. That was my bath for the night. I loved it. Anyways. The shower was working, so I invited them into my home. The wife spoke English. The husband did not. She's telling me about what they're doing and why. And I said, well, hey, listen, I, I want to talk to you guys some more, but, you know, clean up. So they, they went to the bathroom. They came out, and guess what they looked like? New people. They smelled better. The filth was gone. It was sweet. Why do I share that? Why do I share that story? You know, Jesus comes to us in our dirtiness, in our filth, and he invites us to come. Amen? To come to him. To do what? To trust in him. Why? So that he can clean us up. So that he can make us holy and pure and spiritually clean, forgiven. Now, I want to continue with this story. I took about an hour and a half to share the gospel with this couple. It was very evident they weren't believers. And so I walked the wife through the gospel. And I've, I've done this quite a bit. I've worked through translators, and uh, it's really frustrating. It just takes a long time. You kind of lose your train of thought. Anyway, I, I walk her through the gospel. She translates everything I say to her husband. And at the end of that conversation and at the end of our time together, I realized they were still dirty. They were still spiritually unclean. They refused to leave their sin and trust in Jesus. For only Christ can remove the stain of sin from our souls. Amen? Where do we see the cleansing work of Jesus proclaimed in the New Testament? It's everywhere. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, he goes to the list, it's like the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Spiritually immoral, cut off, evil, wicked. He says, in such, you know, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, in such were some of you. But, listen, but you were washed. They repented. They trusted in Jesus. What's the result? That's what they were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Here it is. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what is the big idea this morning? How does one enter into God's holy presence? You've got to be made holy. How do we get there? Through who? Through Jesus. Let me skip this part. Oh, it's good. Um, no, I'm not going to skip it. One thing we, we see, it's easy to miss, but in our passage, we see that the anointing oil was only for who? It's only for the priests. It was only for the priests. That's verses 30 and 32. The very ones who represented God's people. But now, everybody say now. We're almost done. Now, through Christ, we all have access to the presence of God. We all get the same anointing. We all get the Holy Spirit. 
so that we can minister on behalf of Jesus to one another. Ephesians 4, 4-7, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We, everybody say we. Okay, we, good. We are on the same page. We, all of us, need a saving encounter with Jesus in order to be spiritually clean and fit for the presence of God. And this comes through hearing the message of the gospel and our faith in this good news. Those who encounter Jesus in the gospel and turn to him in faith are declared clean and holy forgiven and right before God. You know, the promise of the gospel and what it would accomplish is laid out for us in one of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Listen to verse 25. It's the promise of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. There it is. There's the promise of forgiveness. God's going to do this. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And then we get to verse 36. So, so there's the promise of forgiveness. Everybody say forgiveness. Promised of God. Amen. And I'll give you a new heart. Again, what's the problem of mankind? What's sinful and corrupt? What gives way to all kind of sin and wickedness? It's our heart. But he promises, I'm going to give you a new one. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone, your callous, hard heart, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a teachable, pliable heart, and I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. And who fulfills this promise? Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, we are both made spiritually clean and spirit-filled and thus empowered to live holy. If you trust in Jesus, you are declared holy and empowered to live holy. If you trust in Jesus, you're declared holy, fit for God's presence. You're now in, amen? And you're now empowered by the Spirit to live holy. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus? Dirty and defiled, acknowledging your sin and your need for the Savior. And if you asked Him to clean you, to make you whole, to forgive you. Only Jesus can make you holy, spiritually clean and fit for God's presence. And only Jesus can transform you to live a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. So come to Jesus. Amen? And if you already have, tell others. Tell others. I mean, church, come on. If you're clean, praise God. But if you're clean, what's your job? Yes, serve this body, help it grow, but go out and tell others that they need to be clean, spiritually clean, forgiven, right with God, and only through trusting in Jesus. Invite others to follow Jesus, to be washed and renewed so that they too can be reconciled to God. Amen? I'm so thankful that through Jesus I'm washed. I'm clean. I'm not clean because of anything I've done. I've done nothing but trust by grace in the one who lived a perfect life, the life I could not live, died a sacrificial death, taking the punishment I deserve, that we deserve on the cross. And then he rose. 
And because he rose, it means that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father and that what he did worked. A way has been made for sinners like us to be made clean, spiritually clean, forgiven, and right with God by trusting in Jesus. Three practice steps, and then I'm going to pray. Go to Jesus to get clean, number one. Go to Jesus to get clean, spiritually clean, forgiven. Go to him, trust in him, call out to him, ask him to save you. Admit to Jesus you're a sinner, that you can do nothing to save yourself. Call out to him in faith. Believe that he lived and died and rose again to save sinners like you. So go to Jesus to get clean, number one. Number two, give thanks for the cleansing he provides. I hope you're thankful. If you're spiritually clean, if you're forgiven, if you're right with God, what's the proper response? Give thanks. That, that should be <laughs> our common denominator. That, that should mark Christian life every day. We're thankful. We're giving God thanks for his saving work. And number three, declare, declare the cleansing work of Jesus to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for passages like 1 John 9. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our cleansing, our forgiveness, our rightness with you comes not from anything we can do or have done, but only through what Jesus, you have accomplished for us through your perfect life, your sacrificial death, in your victorious resurrection. We thank you that through you, Jesus, through trusting in you, we can be made clean, holy, and through you, empowered to live holy by the Spirit you give. So, Father, help us as a church body to rest in your cleansing work, to rest in your blood, the shedding of your blood, which simply means the life that you gave. You died so that we could live. You were cut off so that we could be brought near. And for that, we're thankful. And Father, I pray that as a church body, we would care deeply for the lost. Jesus, you came to seek and to save the lost. And I pray that we would imitate you, that we would pursue the lost with the good news, that we would not be tempted to water down the gospel, that we would not preach easy believism or pray a prayer only and you're fine, but rather, Jesus, may we Imitate your example in what you said in Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Father, I pray that we would preach the good news and call sinners to trust in Jesus and to follow you because you're worthy. You are the Savior. Father, we love you. We, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for feeding us from your word. Help us to leave here encouraged, convicted, and excited to serve you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.